Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Martellero, and this week my guest is John Nastos, musician and programmer. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. For the listeners, John Nastos is a multi-instrumentalist, music composer and improviser. Got lots of long words here. Saxophonist, iOS app developer, book author, and currently adjunct faculty at the Portland State University as a jazz saxophone instructor. Wow, I am blown away. That is amazing. It's a mouthful intro, too. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded good. Um, So one of the things I wanted to start with is, uh, as I do in background mode, is uh, talk about how all this got started. Listeners love to hear about how people got inspired and who they studied with and who mentored them when when they were younger. How did you get into music in the first place? And then we'll go on from there. Sure. So the very beginning of it is um, sort of a funny circumstance. Um, I started middle school in sixth grade, and there was basically just one slot in the schedule that you could have a choice between classes. And the choices were you could either take home economics or you could take band. And I said, well, forget it. I'm not taking home economics, so I better take band. And that choice really, you know, kind of snowballed into everything else that's now happened in my life since then, uh, which I did not expect at the time. But that was the very introduction to uh, to playing woodwinds, at least. I'd played a little bit of piano before that, but I started clarinet in the sixth grade, and I got hooked really fast. Now, most kids just dread the thought of playing the piano. You must have had some natural talent that kind of made more joyful for you than most. You know, the piano was interesting to me because my mom played piano, and her oh, mom played piano as well. That'll um, do it. It Yeah, but honestly, piano didn't come very naturally to me. Um, I always had some difficulty with the separation of hands and things like that. And so I had taken lessons for maybe three years at that point. And I did enjoy it, but it really hadn't hooked me. But as soon as I started the clarinet and the saxophone, that got to me. And then I was I was really into it. Your bio says that you studied under some very famous people. I did. I had uh, a really good fortune to study with a bunch of local musicians here in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up, that were unbelievable and really, you know, changed the course of uh, what I was doing and really made me enjoy the music. And then eventually I went off to college at the Manhattan School of Music in New York City, which is you know, New York is sort of the mecca of jazz music, and it was there that I got the opportunity to study with some of the real kind of famous guys, the heavyweights, um, like Bob Mincer on saxophone, Dick Oates, Steve Wilson, um, some really famous names, and luckily also great educators, because those don't always go hand in hand. I would imagine some young musicians worry about whether they'll their skills will be able to stead them in their lives and make a comfortable living. Did studying under some very famous people alleviate those worries for you, or did you still have them? Uh, Well, that's a good question as well. So um, I think in order to understand my decision, we should take just one step back to my high school life again. Sure. 
Uh, so I was taking music really seriously. I was practicing all the time. Actually, I think I was a heavier practicer in high school than I have ever been since. Um, and I had a lot of momentum going forward in music. Um, I was also, you know, a good student and, uh, and I was, tangentially interested in computer science at the time. I had been really interested in it when I was a little bit younger, um, and my dad was a programmer, so that was kind of an, you know, an attractive thing to me. Um, and so when senior year came along, I was a little bit torn about what would be a good academic choice. I thought, well, I've really got this music thing that seems to be going pretty well, but I'm pretty skeptical about the ability to make a living doing it. Mm. And I really like computers and I, you know, I enjoy doing the work on them. And, uh, you know, I think it seems like a little more of a viable career path. So what I did is I applied to um, five schools for computer science and I applied to five conservatories and I just waited until I got my letters back and I thought that you know maybe I would just maybe it would be really obvious to me when I got the acceptance letters where I should go uh, and I got accepted to you know some really good schools and got good scholarship offers I was very lucky to have a choice at that point. And I thought at the time, I thought, you know what, I have so much momentum with this music thing that it would probably be a drag to take four years off to do computer science and then try to pick up that momentum again if I wanted to pursue music. Whereas I feel like I could go to a conservatory, continue that music thing, try to make a go of it. And if it didn't work out, I could go back to the computer science. So that's how I ended up going to a conservatory. Later in the show, we're going to talk about some iOS apps that you built. So at some point, you must have fallen in love with maybe the Mac or the iPhone to Definitely. do programming. So how did that oh, yeah. happen? And did you well, think about writing music as, as a, like with a MIDI synthesizer? Yeah. So even back in middle school in those early days when I was in band class, uh, I had a MIDI keyboard and I loved writing on it and uh, you know being able to compose music at the computer. I didn't really have real people playing in any of my music at the time, but that was fine because it was a great hobby for, uh, for being at home. Um, and then, yeah, and I was always a Mac and Apple kid. Um, we had a... That's not necessary uh, to be on this show, but uh, as a side note, yay! You're right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we had an Apple IIe uh, when I was really young, and I remember... Um, I mean, I was a little bit too young to really understand it, but I remember my mom showing me kind of the basics of logo, um, and that was oh, really yeah. interesting to me language. then. Yeah. And then, uh, then we had a Mac Classic, and then we had an LC3, and on the LC3, I got into HyperCard, and that's what did it for me. Ah, uh, you've been down that road. Absolutely. That, you know, the sort of that um, that language hypertalk that almost looked like pseudocode in a way, you know, mm -hmm. it was so easy to understand at the time, which seems ironic looking back on it, because looking back on it, some of that syntax is sort of magical stuff that doesn't seem to make any sense anymore because it looks like natural language. Uh, but it was great for, you know, fourth or fifth grade me when I was just trying to get into that stuff. So I got completely hooked on the Mac during that era. 
Not many people today remember HyperCard, but there's uh, some uh, great beards of us who kind of remember it fondly and it still miss it. such a great program. Yeah. So um, tell me what happened next. So after you got out of college, what happened? Yeah. So uh, pretty early on in my academic career um, living in New York, I had already decided that I love New York for a lot of things. For instance, the ability to go out and see world-class music all the time, mm-hmm. um, experience other arts as well, you know, the museums, um, everything. I mean, New York is a great art scene. There's no question about it. But I really didn't enjoy living in the city. Um, it just wasn't for me. In fact, there's this this moment that I always remember where... I I loved going on a run um, down in Riverside Park, and I had gone on a run this one Sunday morning, and I stopped at my favorite bagel shop, and I got a bagel, and I went outside. I was on Broadway in New York, and I it was the sun was shining. It was this great New York day, and I took a bite of the bagel, and it just tasted like exhaust to me because <laughs> I was standing on Broadway, and that was the moment where I knew I couldn't live there forever. It just there's no way I could do it. I missed the trees. Um, so I only stayed in New York a little while after I finished college and, uh, and then I moved back to Portland where honestly at that point I was making a pretty good living already playing music, just flying back and forth between New York and Portland. Did you have a landing spot? Were there uh, musicians that uh, welcomed you back and you, you played with them, uh, when you came back to Portland? How did that work? Yeah, so I had had a uh, a few mentors really early on. Um, one of the most important of which was a drummer named Mel Brown, and uh, Mel is an old Motown drummer. Um, he toured the world with the Temptations, and uh, and played with you know Stevie Wonder and Marvin wow. Gaye. He was in Diana Ross's band for years. Those are names years. I do know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just a fantastic drummer. And here in Portland, um, his nickname is the Godfather of Jazz in Portland. Um, he was really pretty responsible for getting this, the jazz scene in Portland in the late 70s and early 80s kind of jump started again. And I had gone to this workshop that he put on every summer called the Mel Brown Summer Jazz Workshop. And that's where I ended up meeting all of these other instructors that I had. And, uh, you know, I ended up sitting in with his band when I was in high school. And then before I was was even out of high school, I was subbing in his band. And uh, he was a uh, he made coming back to Portland really easy because he was very nice and gave me, you know, quite a bit of work and hooked me up with other musicians that got me work. And that was a a really nice in to the scene here. Were you able to live a comfortable life on the money that you made or did you end up living in a trailer with six other guys? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I, you know, things started slowly for sure, but I was very lucky that I was always making it work somehow. Um, now I look back at my calendar from then, cause I'm still using, you know, the same Google calendar account that I was back then. And I look back and I think, wow, I really wasn't doing very much back then. <laughs> you 
know, it was slow times, which seems kind of luxurious in a way when I get super busy now. Uh, but it was great because I had time to practice and get better. And I was doing, I was playing a fair number of gigs and I was just getting started teaching some private lessons and stuff like that. And, you know, it just kind of kept getting better over time. Yeah. Yeah. Did you keep on buying Macintoshes? Were you able to do that? (laughs) I did. I took a brief foray into the PC world for one laptop that I had. Oh, my condolences. Yeah, it was it was rough. It was Windows XP, you know, lots of, <laughs> That's uh, even worse. <laughs> lots of blue screens. You hit, it at, you hit it at just the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah, no, but I got back into it with, you know, the uh, the white polycarbonate MacBook uh, when that was out. And that was yeah, a sweet that, little computer. It was great. And I, if I remember correctly, I think that when I started working on my iOS apps, it must have been on that machine. And yeah, since then, I've been completely back in the Mac world, definitely. Well, in part two of the show, I want to talk to you about iOS app development and how that happened. But right now, it's time for a short commercial break. Folks, I'm chatting with musician and programmer John Nastos. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. There, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Charlotte Henry with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Macmore, simply go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO, or you can just enter www.macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word. And that will take you to our special page for Apple and all our other affiliate partners. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their way. Pretty cool, right? And even better, you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos and podcasts just like this one. So... The next time you're thinking about an online purchase, please do come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with musician and programmer John Nastos. So I take it from the picture you've painted so far that you're a practicing musician, you have a MacBook, and you're interested in programming, and that something tickled your fancy and you decided you needed to build an app. Is that about right? Yes, that is exactly right. So when the iPhone came out, uh, I got interested in iPhone programming um, for no particular other reason than it seemed like a cool thing to do. You know, it seemed like a, a neat new device, but I didn't actually have something that I really wanted to build. And so I set out to learn Objective C. And I just got kind of stuck. It didn't really take the first time. The syntax to me was pretty confusing compared to the languages that I had been working in at the time, which was like, you know, a lot of um, Ruby and PHP and stuff like that, just building a couple websites for people. And then eventually I was playing in a band and we were playing some really complicated music. And I needed a tool to help me with the practice. Um, Specifically, I needed a metronome that did some stuff that other metronomes just don't do. Stuff that that little, you know, thing that sits on top of the piano with a swinging arm is not capable of doing. 
And so I thought, you know, this is this is really kind of the perfect uh, opportunity to build an iPhone app that does this. So I set out to learn Objective C again. And did you take that any time, classes it, or go to any schools? Because there's lots of classes that teach Objective C. Um, I didn't take any formal classes. Really, I was just you know reading the occasional article online, and um, you know I. Stack Overflow type stuff, um, but I didn't have any formal course that I was following or anything. I'm really impressed for you to pick up Objective C and build an iOS app on the fly without having gone to school is just amazing. Well, My hats I think off the to only, you, sir. Oh, thank you. I think the only reason that it worked was because I needed to build this thing. That was the big difference from my first try that didn't work, and this one is just necessity. So you built an app called Metronomics. I checked the app store and it's still for sale. It is. It's been going for years now, which is great. I um, Initially, I built it only as a tool for myself. And, you know, I got the developer account or whatever I needed to put it on my own phone. And then I thought, well, if, if I've gotten this far, I should polish it up a little bit. And maybe I'll get lucky and a couple hundred people will also download it and enjoy it. Um, and luckily it's done better than that. It is no angry birds, you know, by far <laughs> many, many orders of magnitude smaller than that. Um, but it's done well enough that it's, you know, it's been a worthwhile thing for me and it's helped me meet lots of other musicians around the world that use it as a practice tool. Uh, it's led to the development of a couple other apps. Um, and I enjoy working on it. It's, that's one thing that's really great for me because I'm not the type of musician that can just sit down and practice for eight hours. It's just never been my mindset, but somehow I can program like that and I don't get bored with it. So it's, it's actually a nice outlet for me. It turns out that a lot of people have a dual talent that way. They're both programmers and musicians. There's something about the two that mix with each other, the mathematical aspect of music and the logical mind of the programmer seem to be embedded in the brain in very close ways. I 100% agree with that. And I would even maybe take it a little farther, especially with um, jazz and improvising musicians, and say that when you're building an app, a lot of times you're, you may have a goal in mind, but the path to get there isn't super clear, or at least there are multiple routes that you oh, could take to yeah, get there. I know that in spades. My wife is a college professor who teaches programming. Oh, yeah. And a lot of students are weak in mathematics and not very skilled at solving equations when confronted with a word problem that they have to translate into Python. Ask my wife, how do I do this? Show me how to do it. Write the program for me so I can learn from it. And she <laughs> says, no, you need to improvise. You need to do it your own way. Think the problem through. Yep. You know, declare your own variables. Devise your own kind of logic and work your way through it. And they're often at a loss on how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a huge problem if you're not used to thinking that way. You know, if, if you're used to doing you know, math equations where there's more or less one correct way to get through the problem, then you're going to have a huge problem when there are 20 paths that you can take because you don't even know how to start to evaluate those choices. Right, right. So you followed up with two other apps. This was 2011, and this is that you wrote this program. You must have raked in 
quite a bit of money in the last nine years. Pocket change plus. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, one thing that's really nice as a musician is a lot of times um, I'm going out and I'm playing a gig or teaching a lesson and, you know, that's the financial transaction is right there. You're making that money for that hour. And uh, that's comforting in one way because you can have kind of diversified income streams, but there's nothing really coming in the door if you're not going and playing that gig or anything. So the apps were a great way to actually have some of what we call mailbox money where I'm not actively going out and playing that gig or teaching that lesson. And that's been a very comforting thing. Number two was harmonics. Tell me about that app and what it does. Yeah. So, um, it's actually harmonomics. There's an extra syllable in there, uh, which I will admit is not a spectacular name, but, uh, it's kind of grown on me. (laughs) It's branding, you know, between metronomics and harmonomics. Um, so this app was also built out of necessity. Um, I've always felt that one of my weaker areas in my musicianship was my ability to do, um, what, we call it ear training, which is basically the ability to hear something, a melody or a chord, and identify what that is without seeing it notated on the piece of paper. And this is an important skill for any musician, but in particular, again, jazz or improvising musicians, because you're trying to react in real time to what the other musicians are doing. And I just, you know, I didn't grow up with perfect pitch or anything like that. And I had never really worked on ear training at all before I got to college. And so I thought, you know what, this is another perfect opportunity to build the tool that I want. And so eventually I had enough time to, in my schedule, to start another app and I built Harmonomics which has been a great tool. It's really improved my own musicianship, Um, but it's also led to other things. Like now I teach sight singing and ear training at Portland State University, and we even use my app in the class sometimes as one of the tools. So that's really been a a great one for me. And the third was uh, called Pitch Center? Yes. Tell me about that. Pitch Center is... uh, is a tuner and sort of like metronomics is a metronome that does a bunch of stuff that other metronomes don't do. Uh, Pitch center is a tuner that does some stuff that other tuners don't tend to do. So instead of just telling you if you're in tune, um, it gives you a lot more information about the quality of your sound, um, how If you're playing in tune over time, it even has something set up so that you can play along with it and it will graph your intonation in comparison to the computer. So it's just sort of building on my theme of, you know, these are these are tools that, yes, you can do the basic stuff with them, but they also have a whole bunch of other things kind of taking advantage of the technology that we have today. You know, we don't need to use simple tools all the time anymore because we have these basically supercomputers in our pockets all the time. Well, we got to move on. Uh, I want to talk about your books next as if it wasn't impressive enough about the apps that you've built. You're also a book author. (laughs) And your first book was uh, part of an ongoing series, I take it, um, The Mechanism. Tell me about that book. Sure. So uh, the both books came out pretty close to the same time. Um, one of them is um, 
a sort of a primer on improvisation, giving the reader a lot of the tools that they may need to be uh, that they may need to be an improvising musician. Um, some things just like basic chord and scale theory, all the way up to the construction of certain licks in the jazz realm. And the curriculum really just came from what I had been teaching my students for years and years at this point. And, uh, you know, there was stuff that I found that I was giving almost every single student when they came in the door, almost regardless of level. If they were a beginner student, it's because they hadn't seen it before. And if they were more advanced, it was because maybe they had some holes in their learning. So I came out with this book and uh, it's, you know, allowed me to reach some musicians online that I wouldn't have access to here in Portland and also lets me uh, give students something to come away with if I go do a master class at a high school or university somewhere where I'm not actually there on faculty. This is very interesting to me because, well, I'm not a musician um, I appreciate the aspect of improvisation, and especially when it comes to programming, which I used to do a lot of. One thinks of improvisation as something magical, some God-given talent where one spontaneously dreams up sound sequences that are appealing. But it sounds like one can actually uh, quantify this in some way and develop mental tools for improvisation. Can you kind of explain how that works? Sure. Yeah. Or I can try. I mean, that's a very hard thing to explain. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's hard to understand. Sure. So one of the things that I usually give students or or even audience members sometimes when I'm trying to explain improvisation to them so that they understand maybe the performance a little more is uh, just a parallel to how we use language because jazz improvisation or uh, improvisation and music in general is really very close to how we speak and communicate with each other. For example, the words and sentences that I'm saying to you right now are in a sense improvised in that I'm not reading a sheet of paper. I'm making it up as I go. But, but there are standard sequences of words that make your intention and your language clear to the listener. Because yes. if you were to reverse some word orders or use awkward language, the listener would be puzzled. So there are standard patterns of speech that one strings yes. together, right? You've, you've hit the nail on the head completely. And it's not like we had a contract going into this beforehand that says, look, this is how we're going to do it. This is kind of expected. You know, I, I came into this knowing that we were going to speak in the English language. I realized that we were going to talk about certain topics. You know, I'm going to use verbs and subjects in my sentences and I'm going to do all this and you're going to be able to understand and respond. And this is the same sort of stuff that goes on on the bandstand. So we may, in the jazz realm, we may play a standard, um, which is a song that all jazz musicians are sort of expected to know. And we're probably going to take a solo in a certain order. Um, that solo is going to be made up of a multiple of some number of bars, maybe 32 measures at a time. And the lines within that solo are going to be constructed in a way that the other musicians have a point of reference to understand it, just like you mm -hmm. and I are, you know, speaking in these sentences together. 
That's a great so, analogy. It kind of clears things up a little. Yeah, it's it's an interesting area. And th- there's one other example that I often give students, which is, and I'll, this is a visual thing, but I'll try to describe it for our audio medium here. Um, if you imagine a Venn diagram and it has two circles, one of those circles is what I call the math circle. And the other side is what I call the ear circle. And the math circle encompasses things like uh, music theory. So in other words, a G7 chord is made up of G, B, D, and F. There's no debating it. It's absolutely concrete. That's what it is. And the ear side is a lot less concrete. It's the sort of thing like, well, this sounds consonant to me based on my musical upbringing, or this is the type of thing that I enjoy hearing. And for any improviser on any tune, there's going to be this Venn diagram of the tools that they use to improvise. And it may be more on the math side or more on the ear side. And it may even shift during the solo. Um, but there are always concrete tools that that you use when you're improvising and not concrete tools. And that's what I think kind of makes the magic behind it. So the talent and the gift is not necessarily learning the tools, but being able to gracefully pull them together spontaneously and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if we go back to that language analogy, you know, you could have a person that knows all the rules of the English language, but you may not enjoy reading a novel that they write. Computer speak. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, we're starting to run out of time. I have just enough time to ask you one more question. Um, You are on the faculty of Portland State University, and you are a professor of uh, jazz on the saxophone. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the life and times of a jazz instructor in a university. Tell me about the classes and what's that like and the kinds of students who enroll. And is there such a thing as like a midterm and final exam? (laughs) Things like that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm actually uh, adjunct faculty at Portland State University, Portland Community College, and Mount Hood Community College, all here in the Portland area. Uh, And at each school, I have um, private students that I teach either on saxophone or clarinet. And I have classroom classes, such as uh, the sight singing and ear training that I mentioned, and Mm -hmm. then also ensembles that I coach. So basically bands where I'm uh, watching them and coaching them. Are these classes packed or is it one threesies and foursies? Uh, Well, it it varies. Um, So the... Uh, the private lessons are obviously one-on-one. And then the ear training class generally has about 8 to 12 students in it. And the ensembles are um, usually small ensembles, so between 4 and 8 players. So usually pretty small classes for what I'm doing. What is the final exam like? Curious. The final exams uh, for the um, for the classroom stuff is not super interesting. Um, you know, it's a lot of cases, it's people sitting at a desk, you know, writing stuff on a piece of paper in just like you would expect in another class. The difference is in the ear training class, I'm playing stuff at the piano and the students are writing down what I play. That's basically their final. Um, for the private students, it's a little different. The private students have things called juries, which is where they come in and they perform in front of a panel of faculty members. Oh. And they show off what they've been working on either that term or that year. 
Um, and that can be, you know, speaking as someone that went through the same thing as a music student, that can be a really nerve wracking thing. Uh, so I, you know, I sympathize with them whenever that time. <laughs> comes. Yeah. The concert piano jitters. Yeah. And there's this, this funny thing that goes on too, which is, for me, and I think a lot of other musicians, it is way more difficult to perform in front of three people than it is to perform in front of 300 people. I understand. I understand yeah. that exactly. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of the show. This has been a fascinating story that you've told us. And I've learned so much about music, ignorant as I am. I'm sure the listeners are going to really enjoy hearing this story that you've told us. This is fascinating. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Is there anything else you want to wrap up with, or shall we just close the show? Uh, you know, if people want to visit johnnastos.com, that will lead them to um, links to uh, performance clips, videos, and also all the apps that I've built. So if they're interested in, in any of that, um, and the books for that matter, they can just check out my website. Excellent. And if the listeners would like to try to contact you personally, what's the best way to do that? Twitter is great. My Twitter handle is JNPDX. Um, and also my website has some more contact info there as well. Great, great. Well, hopefully the listeners enjoyed this show. Thank you again for joining me. It's been great, John. Thank you so much. Folks, you've been listening to John Marcellaro and John Nastos on the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. Mm -hmm.